is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And if you like what you hear each night on this show, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our five best stories each week. And by the way, send the link to friends if you like what you hear. And now it's time for our twice-monthly series, Rule of Law, on how this thing called the rule of law silently shapes the world around us without us even knowing it. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story. Russia has quite a history with music. Here's native son Slava Rostropovich speaking alongside a translator. My mother uh, carried me for 10 months. I tell mother, you have extra months. Why you not make for me beautiful face? And mother tell me, my son, I was busy with make to you beautiful hands. Hands that could conduct and would reinvent cello playing, impacting who's now the world's most famous cellist, Yo-Yo Ma. That recording just made my hair stand on end. I, I couldn't sleep that night. And this Russian history also includes pianist Vladimir Horowitz. I believe that if you practice too long time, it becomes mechanical. I like brushing the teeth. I believe to, to do it every day, but not too long. I don't practice more than one hour and a half. Never. But I never miss a day. Never miss a day. James Hilton wrote, If by some dispensation a man born deaf were to be given hearing for a single hour, he might well spend the whole time with Horowitz. But history could have easily had it that both Horowitz and Rostropovich might as well have been the deaf ones. Their artistry never showcased on the world stage, given the country they were born in. Every one of us has some kind of religious frustration. Where in one way we're happy, in another way we're unhappy. I have my own, you think I have everything, but I wanted to be a composer. That was his plan until 1917, when some other people couldn't care less that he had plans. And then we had the little revolution. <laughs> he laughs because otherwise he'd have to cry. The Russian Revolution, led by communist Vladimir Lenin, would go on to kill four million of his countrymen through executions, death camps, and state-caused famine. I'm from well-to-do family, you see. My father was a very important engineer. But when the revolution came, his father's great success became their greatest liability. He lost everything. The communist, uninterested in any high-minded concepts like property rights or law, took everything. Horowitz recounted, I saw with my own eyes how they threw our piano out the window. He was a teenager, suddenly without anything, and he did something about it. To start to give concerts, said that they gave me my education, now I have to give them back something. And so I played till today. <laughs> Those concerts would immediately help take care of his family, whereas composing wouldn't. And so away it went. 
In a whole 53 years later, Slava Rostropovich didn't have any better luck with his interactions with their government. In this moment, government just closed my mouth and said, no, please not express something new. Slava's first interaction with the rule of their whims over the rule of law was when the Soviet regime forced his teacher Dmitry Shostakovich to leave the Moscow Conservatory. His crime? Producing music that was too chaotic, too innovative, at least for their preferred brand of socialist realism. Their official statements declared that Shostakovich had, quote, anti-democratic tendencies alien to the Soviet people. Alien? According to them, not according to any actual law. So in protest, Slava left the conservatory too. What he gives to us in his music is what he terms, he called himself a foot soldier in the service of music. And I think of him in that sense, it would be the foot soldier reporting on the triumphs and tragedies of the world. Slava was a nobody when he left, so it didn't catch the Soviets' attention. But when he became somewhat of a somebody, he spoke out again and again, not using words. It was this composition, Czech composer Antonin Dvorak's cello concerto in B minor, that Slava decided to perform in London on the very same day that the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia to put an end to their democratic reforms. An invasion of 200,000 troops, 2,000 tanks, and 72 of Dvorak's countrymen would die. And Slava, to make sure that his audience knew exactly what he was doing, stood up after the performance and proudly hoisted the Czech composer's score. Let's just say those Soviets weren't thrilled and it was nothing compared to Slava's next strike, an open letter to the state-run newspaper, Pravda. I remember and would like to remind you of our newspapers in 1948, how much nonsense was written about giants of our music who are now honored. Now, when one looks at the newspapers of those years, one becomes unbearably ashamed. I do not speak about political or economic questions in our country. There are people who know these better than I. But explain to me, please, why in our literature and art, so often people absolutely incompetent in this field have the final word. Why are they given the right to discredit our art? in the eyes of our people. Every man must have the right to think independently and express his opinion about what he knows and what he has personally thought about, experienced, and not merely to express with slightly different variations the opinion which has been inculcated in him. I know that after my letter there will undoubtedly be an opinion about me, but I am not afraid of it. I openly say what I think. To state the obvious, Pravda didn't run that letter. This, along with Slava, giving refuge to the era's most infamous dissident, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, 
would be their last draw with him. Cancel my, my tour in the West in May 74. I go out from Russia without my family because Minister of Culture tell me I must go out. Not because Slava violated some democratically passed laws that constituted treason. No, because he did something much worse. He violated his dictator's personal sense of pride, and that couldn't be tolerated. For Vladimir Horowitz, at least he got to leave on his own terms. In 1925, he requested and received a visa to study in Berlin. And I smuggled some dollars. I remember I put it in the shoes and I started my career in Europe. He never became a student. He lied and he was free, he hoped. And when we come back, we continue our Rule of Law series and the stories of Vladimir Horowitz and Slava Rostropovich. You may not be a fan of classical music, but freedom, we can hear those sounds throughout this and the next segment. Here on Our American Stories, we continue after these messages. Our American Stories, and we return to the stories of Russian musicians Vladimir Horowitz and Slava Rostropovich, and how their careers were crushed by the lawlessness of the communist government. Just kicked out of his homeland, Slava goes to America and makes his own statement. I will not utter one single lie in order to return. I would never see Russia and my friends again. The Soviets tried to make good on this when four years later they formally stripped him of his citizenship. Here's his friends on how he took the news. He was wounded. Very deep. For Maestro, I'm sure it must have been incredibly difficult to not to be able to return to his homeland. and. I think that made his art only more richer. For Vladimir Horowitz, producing art that was richer was about the furthest thing from his mind. He was just praying that his debut in New York's Carnegie Hall on January 12, 1928 would go well. My debut with Tchaikovsky concert, I knew that I can make such a wild sound and such a speed, and such a noise, and such a things that the public will be completely crazy. And I wanted to do it, but subconsciously, it was in order to have success not to return to my country. I wanted to get success in the whole world, just not to get back. Because if I would not have success in Europe and America, I had to go back. He 
didn't have to go back, and for the rest of his life made these United States his home. It was a debut, unlike any other. The New York Times reported that the piano smoked at the keys, and that during most of the intermission, the audience continued to applaud and to call the pianist back to the stage. The New York Times' writer Olin Downs continued that it was the wildest welcome a pianist has received in many seasons, and described the performance as a whirlwind of virtuoso interpretation, amazing technique, irresistible youth, electrifying temperament, a tornado unleashed from the steps. The late Goddard Lieberson wrote, with a generosity not always typical of performing artists, a great pianist friend of mine said to me concerning the recent debut of a certain pianist, debut, debut? There has been no debut since that of Vladimir Horowitz. That was a debut. Unlike Horowitz, who would make his home in the financial center of America, New York, Rostropovich would park his artistry in a different kind of power center. And. Washington loves celebrity, loves fame, loves glamour, and my goodness, he had that. And I think both Washington and Slava loved the fact that this escapee from communism was going to head the orchestra in the capital of the United States. Here's members of the National Symphony Orchestra on his impact. He was able to express what he needed to uh, with his body, body language, with his facial expressions. He wanted it to be devastating, devastating. Frederiky, when you come in in the first movement of Tchaikovsky six, after quiet bass clarinet, six women in front row must die of heart attack. He was trying to get across, you know, he just couldn't get it across. And finally he said, to the upper string, he says, you must play this like you have fork and brain. That got the point, just the image of that, like, mm, got the point across. And immediately was there. Like, one time he, he said he wanted the symbol to sound like every glass in Washington DC would break at the same time. Every water glass, you know. He, 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 he was maybe over the top, but he got his point across. And ultimately, the, the musical impact was there. I first make fire in my heart, in my body, because before I make a beat, I imagine this sound before I make a beat. I was born anew, Slava said. I found a great deal more in music than I did when I lived in the Soviet Union. I re-examined everything, and I could see everything more vividly. All composers, even Beethoven, came to mean more. Unlike in the Soviet Union, he was free to re-examine everything. Nothing was beyond examination. Nothing stood in the way of artistic expression, as long as he didn't violate anyone else's rights to do the same in their lives. He was in America, where the rule of law, stable, knowable law, and not the changing whims of some government official, reigned. The same force of freedom worked in Vladimir Horowitz's life, allowing him to become known by many as the greatest pianist 
of the 21st century. My father-in-law said that the, the, all the geniuses, they cannot be geniuses 24 hours. <laughs> we, have, we have very big works of Beethoven and Mozart too, you know. <laughs> During his exile from his homeland, Rostropovich often described himself as an ambassador of the Russian people in Russian music, just not their rotten government. And in 1986, in the wake of the Soviet Union's increasing march towards freedom and law, Vladimir Horowitz announced a return tour for performances in Moscow and Leningrad, his first time back since 1925, to the communist-controlled society that had taken everything from his family, and that he had vowed never to visit again. I didn't see my, my family for six years. I don't know how they look, how they are. When I left Russia, my niece was nine years old, now she's 70. His niece met him at his Moscow performance along with this rousing crowd. Horowitz worried that his eccentric style might be unwelcome in the bland communist society of forced uniformity. Maybe my playing will seem strange to these people, he told the New York Times. Maybe I'm too romantic. Now, Horowitz might have been right about those government officials, but he was wrong about his people. And then I spent all the night here because I wanted to get the ticket by all means, but afraid to miss it. From my childhood, it was my dream to hear Horowitz. And now my dream will come true. The Times reported that many in the audience cried unabashedly, bringing him back on stage for six curtain calls after he had had three encores. Mr. Horowitz became something of a sensation in a city unaccustomed to his kind of flamboyance. And Slava Rostropovich's unexpected return to the motherland came three years later when the Berlin Wall fell. I'm Peter Jennings in New York just a short while ago. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. The wall that the East Germans put up in 1961 to keep its people in will now be breached by anybody who wants to leave. Dancing everywhere, East and West joining in a celebration of a united future. And that is a feeling you must, you must understand. And you have, the only thing you have to do is dancing. Slava flew to Berlin as quickly as he could with his cello and played an impromptu concert at the Crumbling Wall. And the very next month took the National Symphony Orchestra to Moscow and Leningrad. He had not been able to sleep, so he went out in the street and he was walking down the street and it's like five o'clock in the morning and some old lady is out sweeping the sidewalk or shoveling the snow because it was the middle of winter. And she stopped and she said, Slava Rostropovich? And he said, yes. And she said, I thought you were dead. It's a miracle. And, and they all treated him like it was a miracle that he was there, that he was alive, that he was still playing, he was still conducting. Even just the dress rehearsal, and they allowed an audience into the dress rehearsal. And in the back of the hall in the Moscow Conservatory, I mean, there's the nice seats up front, but in the back, 
It's just these benches, hard benches. And maybe they're supposed to be five people in one bench, and there'd be like 12 people just jammed in there like sardines, and they had all paid their five rubles, and they were going to see this if it was the last thing. And you just looked at them, and you saw how desperate they were, and you realized he wasn't kidding. It really was like life and death to them. And for his final encore, Rostropovich chose this American classic, John Philip Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever, the traditional finale of the National Symphony Orchestra's annual 4th of July concert on the West Lawn of the Capitol. The Moscow audience you can hear clapping and standing in ovation. Later, amidst bear hugs and vodka toasts at a post-concert reception, Slava was asked why he picked Stars and Stripes Forever. The idea, he said, came from the heart. Slava Rostropovich and Vladimir Horowitz, forever Russians, forever American dreamers, thanks to our rule of law. And great job on that as always. And what a story, folks. The merging and the merger of art and culture and history and, of course, law. And you've never heard it put together like this, and that's what we do each and every day here on Our American Stories. Tell stories you won't hear at our nation's schools or in the media. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, Slava Rostropovich's story, Vladimir Horowitz's story. They're American stories here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.